It's National Hispanic and Latinx Heritage Month, and we jump off this year's celebration with a special interview with YA author Daniel Ailman. His debut novel, Indivisible, follows Mateo, a gay teenager in New York City who must keep his sister safe after his parents, undocumented Mexican immigrants, are detained by ICE. We talked to Daniel about how he drew upon the stories from his community to help build the moments he created in his novel, the necessity for more narratives to have LGBTQ plus as lead characters in fiction, and his love for the musical Wicked. I'm Danny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us in this new episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hey, 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 welcome back to the Vulgar Geniuses Book Club Meetup on, what am I talking about? I it's don't a know podcast. What, what are, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm but... getting our events mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> we had, a, we had a, a book club meetup not too long ago. This has been quite a month, um, but with all of the craziness, we have been able to uh, read some really good stuff between mm-hmm. July and August. Yes. And one of the things that we are going to talk about today, and the only thing that we're going to talk about today, is um, all about Daniel Ailman's new book, Indivisible. Um, he was born and raised in Mexico City, a graduate of McGill University, and he is passionate about books, coffee, and dogs. I have no problem with any of those things. Uh, <laughs> after spending time in Montreal and the New York City area, he now lives in Toronto, where he is on a never-ending search for the best tacos in the city. Um, his his new YA novel, Indivisible, is his first novel, which follows a gay teenager in New York City who must keep his sister safe after his parents, who are undocumented Mexican immigrants, are detained by ICE. Uh, hello. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi. Thank you so much for having me. We're so grateful to have you here. Um, so we do a little something special with our YA. YA authors when they come on so yeah we we do a quick like little rapid fire just to kind of you know get to know each other real quick and maybe like to lighten up the mood before we talk about the heavy hitters in your book perfect okay so I'm ready yay favorite vacation spot uh somewhere beachy yes you can come to Florida but not right now because we're high in Delta (laughs) favorite musical uh, wicked. Oh, me too. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Our favorite late night bodega snack. Uh, donuts. Oh my god, I had donuts in my wedding. Oh my god. <laughs> Best place to celebrate Pride. Toronto. I would say Toronto Pride is very, very lively and very fun. So, if you were quarantined with one of your characters from your novel, who would it be? I would say Mateo, because he and I are basically the same person, even though I don't know if we would drive each other crazy. (laughs) (laughs) We will be 
asking a deeper question about you and Mateo and the connections uh, later on. But first off, we want to know exactly what was the inspiration behind your, your novel? Of course. Well, I, my family and I, we immigrated from Mexico when I was a teenager. And I really, really wanted to tell a story about immigration that felt authentic and that felt genuine. And that kind of went, um, that kind of differed from the narrative that we were hearing at the time about immigrants and about Mexican immigrants specifically. I wanted to tell a story that felt very human and that felt very real. And that is how the story was born. When when I was reading it, I, it was giving me like anxiety because I'm like, oh no, oh, like I was hyperventilating. Like, how is this teenager gonna do this? Da, da, da. I don't wanna spoil too much for many people but it was giving me anxiety in a good way. And I loved it. I know you loved it because you were like, this book, this book is giving me anxiety. <laughs> and I'm like, we must continue reading it. Aww. It was, it was uh, an amazing and, and very well-written book. I enjoyed every, every second of it. Thank you. Um, so we started out our year reading um, Case and Calendars, King and the Dragonflies followed by Kosoko Jackson's Yesterday is History. Now, having your um, novel out in the YA universe featuring a queer character, what does this mean for you as a writer, as well as all the teens who will like read your book? It means so much. I, I mean, as so many marginalized creators and as so many people who come from underrepresented backgrounds, I didn't really grow up uh, seeing myself in books. And it means so much to me. You know, I've, I've received um, messages like DMs on Instagram and on Twitter from, from readers who have seen themselves in the book. And that is just, that is something that I don't think anyone prepared me for. That is something that I hadn't really thought about much. And it's something that really makes everything worth it. Like to, to have someone tell me like, I felt seen in, in this book. And I felt like, you know, my experiences were represented in this novel. I, that is so meaningful. And that is something that, that really um, motivates me to keep going and to keep telling stories. Well, we're so grateful for you having to like dive in into mm -hmm. this way, especially within YA genre, because uh, I'm a former librarian. So being in the high school environment during this, the last few years was probably the, it probably was the first time where I was being, I was being exposed to uh, queer characters in literature. So this, I know is huge because I, in mm -hmm. all of my 40, almost 42 years of living, I have an understanding of like, this is, this is new and needs to be, definitely need to be more because it represents everybody. Totally. So your book kept us on edge, like what we told you earlier, <laughs> with every turn of the page. We know early on that Mateo's parents are living in constant fear of the possibility of their immigration status being found out. Mm -hmm. There were also other factors that some readers may not have taken into consideration, such as what Mateo and his sister were going to do after his parents had been taken um, or, you know, take us through that process of highlighting these major points that often aren't thought by people living with the privilege of citizenship. Well, I really wanted the story to feel real and I really wanted the story to represent the struggles of undocumented immigrants without shying away of the difficult questions. 
And so those difficult questions are, you know, the center of the book is what are these kids going to do now that their parents are gone? And that, that question has so many different dimensions. Like, what are these kids going to do in terms of their education? What are they going to do in terms of where they're going to live? Um, where are they going to get the, you know, the validation and support and love that any teenager or any child needs? And so I found that instead of leaning away from those questions, I leaned into them. And that made the story so much richer and so much more authentic. And, and that's, that's pretty much my, that was my goal to, to represent the difficulties and the ugliness of, of deportation. Um, and also to show it through the eyes of a character who is compassionate and who is kind and, and who you're cheering for because, because we want him to, to, you know, to win in the story. Mm -hmm. What was the research that you needed to do in order for you to, to write this novel? I mean, we, we understand, like you said, you migrated from Mexico, but was there anything else that you didn't know um, that you needed to look up to make sure that those experiences that you portrayed in the story were close to those um, that happened in, in real life? Of course. Well, a lot in the book comes from personal experience. So a lot of the emotions, I think, come from a very personal place. But of course, I had to do a lot of research specifically into the deportation process. And I so I read a lot. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of even legal texts, like texts meant for uh, law students who are who are studying immigration law. And I also uh, got a chance to speak with lawyers who clarified some of my questions. And most importantly, I was able to connect with people in the Latinx community who shared bits and pieces of their stories with me and who shared, uh, you know, who opened up to me and who, who told me what they had been through and who told me how they had experienced certain things. And all of this, you know, combined um, informed the story. And, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of the story that comes, you know, from me and my family and a personal place and a lot that comes from external research, which was very, very vast. The questions that you would give to, to those who, who had those different experiences, like, just like asking them, would you share your story? Was that a difficult conversation or, or were they like, oh yeah, you want to know, let me tell you everything. I find, you know, I reached out to people that I had a connection with. So I reached out to people in my community and they were very willing to share. Um, I, and of course, when you're, when you're asking personal questions like these, you want to be super respectful and you want to understand that not everyone may be willing to open up to you. But I was fortunate in the sense that the people I contacted were very generous and were very willing to, to share their experiences with me. Yeah, we I was wondering about like the research aspect because like the emotions for me were very real. And mm -hmm. you know, when we when we talk about like immigration and ICE and deportation, it's like, you know, it's all about the world of adults and like adults making decisions for everybody. And nobody cares about feelings or children for the mm -hmm. most part. And I think that's why this this story kind of really like made the, an impact on me because it's like it's seen through the eyes of somebody that can be anybody's child or is 
somebody that is living through right now like this experience and yeah. I think most of like stories sometimes they would touch on this part but they won't go into it because I think you know like you said research is a big part of it and also it's ugly you know mm-hmm. people don't want to talk about it and sometimes yeah. it's not really like the most pleasant of like stories to tell mm-hmm. and it's harder to tell Totally. And it was, it was a difficult book to write, but at the same time, I really wanted, I wanted to fill it with hope and I wanted to fill it with love. And that was, that was an important balance for me to strike because at the center of this book is also, you know, this need to be with your family and this love that you have for your family. And, and so that is something that I hope kind of infuses the story with with a lot of with a lot of hopefulness and a lot of um yeah with a lot of love this story tells us it tells us how the lives of the families like this that it causes like a, a ripple effect in with not only within their families but everyone that is connected mm-hmm. um, was that your intention to show how deeply affected people are, such as like Mateo's friend and his uncle and his and his uncle's family? Absolutely. I think that deportation, we tend to think of it as it only affects the people who are being removed from the country. But the reality is that, you know, people like Mateo's parents have been in the country for many, many years and they've built lives. And by you know, by not allowing these people the chance to um, pursue a path to citizenship, we are affecting so many people and we are kind of causing a ripple effect in their families, in their communities, in their cities. And absolutely, that was something that I really wanted to explore. That particular part, uh, when he is living with his uncle, I think for me, like I really truly understood what it is when you're like in an environment that's not your own. Like a few years ago, I moved in with a friend of mine in, in uh, DC. Mm-hmm. And during those, that time, it was kind of like, oh, you know, you move in with your friend, but then you really like move in with your friend. So you realize like, oh, there's some things that I know that I need to refrain from doing because I'm in this person's house and they don't like those things. Mm-hmm. But within Mateo's particular, you know, his his particular situation, it was kind of like the grace period for him was not as as long as I thought it should have been, which, you know, when you're dealing with a story, you need that conflict, right? Um, what was it to like... Do you have anybody who speaks about that particular character of, of his uncle's wife? Yes. So, uh, you know what? That is a very interesting character. And I've heard so many different um, opinions about Amy. And I've heard people who see her as, you know, a flawed human who is real and who is sympathetic. And I've heard people who think of her as an absolute villain. And I, I mean, I find it funny, the different interpretations of her. I intended her to be sympathetic and I intended her to be, you know, just like any, any one of us who is faced with a difficult situation, which is from one day to the next, you know, she's, she's raising her own family. She's a new mom. She, she wants to, um, you know, she has all these dreams about what her life is meant to be. And from one day to the next, 
her life is interrupted also. And she wants to do the right thing. She is, you know, she wants to be an ally, but it's also an exploration of how allyship in certain scenarios is not easy and it's not straightforward. And as much as, you know, your intentions may be good, there may come a point where, you know, there may come a limit to how much you're able to give. And so she's definitely an antagonist in that sense, in the sense that she's unable to, you know, to give Mateo and Sophie the home that they need. But at the same time, I kind of understand where she comes from and what, what her own problems are. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you said that because allyship, it definitely, I think for if true allyship comes with work that mm-hmm. some people are unwilling, they don't want to do, they just want to put up, you know, I'll put up the black square, or I'll put up the pride flag and, you know, in support of my friend or whatever, but they're not willing to like, you know, stand beside that person and do the work. And totally. I, at that particular moment in that book, it really truly speaks to, to what you just said. Yeah. And, and true allyship, as you said, it, it requires work and it can at times be uncomfortable. It's not easy and it's not meant to be easy, but, but if we're, if we want to call ourselves true allies then we have to put in the work. And that is something that, you know, Amy at some point says, I can't, I can't put in the work anymore. And that is something that I wanted to explore. Yeah. Cause it was like, you know, it was uncomfortable to read and I'm like you getting mad about water in the bathroom <laughs> and some dishes not being cleaned like are you for real like this children lost their families like in like an instant like you are the only person like the only adult in your husband that these children are clinging to for like literally dear life mm-hmm. and get over that fact but when you know I guess it it helps that we talk to you to like you know humanize my feelings too so you know I'm like I'm very upset but when you say like yeah you know he he, she's a new mother I'm a new mother and you just want to start your life and I'm like I just want to start my life (laughs) you know and it that's why I'm like this book is so real because it's it explores the both the good and the ugly like Mm -hmm. you see her parts I'm like you know trying to reach out to Sophie and like you know let me let me take care of you let me try to cook you your favorite food even though we know it's trash but here we are you know but then at at the same time you you can't be you can't be mad at her all the time because she's also human at some point she's like well this is the only thing that I can give and right now Mm -hmm. maybe later I I can be more but right now this is this is where I'm at yeah and can we be mad really yes we can (laughs) (laughs) yes we can at this person (laughs) (laughs) so Mateo has a story of his family story that has mixed status Mm -hmm. we also meet Kimmy that came to the United States in a different way. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of immigrants that are in opposition to have other immigrants come to the U- to the United States in a, such a non-conventional way. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you help somebody find compassion and understanding for other people who are also looking to live in this country, but maybe, you know, because a lot of immigrants hate on other immigrants, mm-hmm. you know, I'm speaking from like the stuff that I've seen because I am one too. But then sometimes people don't have that compassion of like, they just, 
they're running away from something and they're looking for a better life. So it's all like with this book that she wrote, I'm like, how can, you know, how can we help start a conversation or, you know, to these people that maybe it's not understanding, like we are all, we're all trying to do something here. I'd like to think that stories have a lot of power. I, I like to think that stories have the ability to make us feel empathy and that they have the ability to open our eyes and see the ways in which our own lives are similar and different from other people's lives. And so, you know, in this book, I think that it was, it was interesting for me to, to talk about immigrants with different backgrounds. So as you said, there's Mateo who comes from a mixed status Mexican family. And then there's Kimmy whose mom came to the United States from Korea as a young girl. And then there's Adam whose grandparents immigrated from Italy. And I think that especially in, in a moment when um, Mateo and Kimmy kind of open up to each other, and, and talk about their struggles. I, I hope that with that scene, we're able to see a little bit um, how our struggles, regardless of our background, like the humanity that that unites us and the, the things that, that, that make us similar to each other are stronger and bigger than the things that make us different. And, and I think that that is powerful because if we realize that, then we're able to step into the shoes of other people and we're able to understand the experiences of other people. Writers build characters that are, are a part of themselves. So mm-hmm. going back to what you stated earlier about how, you know, you would be quarantined with Mateo. <laughs> we want to know like what parts of Mateo are you and maybe even all the other characters if they possess anything that that is a part of you. Well, Mateo is funny because he was the first character um, that I wrote where I actively set out to write a character that was similar to me. Um, Before I had written, you know, I had written all sorts of stories and I had written characters that were just all sorts of people. And then with Mateo, I wanted to make him like a mirror of myself um, as much as I could. And so I think that one of the things that is true about both of us is that we both struggle to ask for help when we need it. And, and at times, I think when, when, I, when I feel stressed or when I feel anxious or when I'm in a difficult situation, my instinct is kind of to close myself off and to, to try to deal with things on my own. And what I've learned um, and what this book also taught me as I was writing it is that it's that, that's not... The best thing to do you know when we're in a difficult situation what's best is to open ourselves up to to the people around us and to lean on other people and one of the things that i hope people get out of this book is that it's okay to ask for help when you need it and that asking for help doesn't make you weak it makes you stronger and those are things that i think i haven't always fully understood myself but that i'm trying to learn and relearn and work on um and that is part of why this book is so special to me and why this character is so special to me because because we both struggle to speak up and to use our voice and to ask for help and here i thought you were going to say we're the same because of our love for musicals (laughs) (laughs) i love musicals too don't get me wrong i'm a big musical fan (laughs) (laughs) It was, I was, I was just like thinking, cause I, 
I was, I went to your like Instagram page and I think the first picture that I saw was your picture of Wicked. And I'm just like, I have the same picture on my Instagram. <laughs> this is so wild. And when you said you, you watched it like four times and I'm like, huh, I think this is his favorite. <laughs> by now, by now it's been like eight times or seven times. I forget, but I've seen Wicked so many times. I'm just obsessed. It's, oh man. It's so good. It's so good that flying, that flying green lady gets you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So what do you want young people to understand about the word, the word privilege when reading this book? I think my hope is that people will take a look at themselves and at their own families and at their own family history. Because I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's easy to look at, at, you know, people who come from different countries and at immigrants in general, and to think, oh, well, maybe they don't belong or maybe they shouldn't be here. And I think that that's just, that's just too easy and too wrong to think because the reality is, especially in the United States, I feel so many people came from so many different places and it's important to, to take a look at yourself and to ask yourself like, you know, do people deserve a chance to build a good life and do people deserve a chance to um, remain with their families? And, and I think that, yeah, I, I hope that this book will inspire people to kind of take a look at themselves and ask themselves if they have a certain type of privilege that other people don't um this genre of of young adult fiction is this one where you you feel like this is where you're going to live this is where you're going to breathe or do you have like hopes to write adult fiction or anything nonfiction, whatever do you do you see yourself wanting to do that later on you know what? The the truth is I want to do everything. Like I, I love writing so much and I have ideas for more young adult books. I have ideas for middle grade, for adult books. All of them are fiction. I definitely think I will stay within the fiction world. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really want to expand and to tell all sorts of different stories. So for now, I'm very happy in the YA world. I think it's been so wonderful and especially to connect with younger readers. I think that YA can be particularly impactful because you're reaching people who are understanding themselves and understanding the world. And that can be really, really wonderful. Um, But yeah, I absolutely would, would love to expand into other age categories and genres whatever you intend on writing and it comes to fruition like just send it our way oh absolutely <laughs> like proofreaders or whatever bounce ideas off you know just like i love it and we'll let you talk here again you know because i think like like you said that the impact of a novel especially when you're young like leaves like it stays with you until adulthood mm-hmm. and there are some books that we've read you know when we were young we're like oh like this is me especially if you felt seen and mm-hmm. heard and you're being represented that's a lot for somebody yeah. that's very very young so I think if you if you continue making these stories for our readers I think you'll you'll be remembered until until forever because mm-hmm. you know we need it. We need it. Yeah, we definitely need it. 
Um, recently, um, Jason Reynolds uh, was interviewed in the New Yorker about his life as a writer and, and his audience. Uh, and he's quoted as saying that I write to black children, but I write for all children. And we just wanted to know like, who, who do you write for and, and why? I, I actually, I haven't read his interview, but I love that quote because I think that I could, I could say something similar. I, I write specifically for Latinx and queer children uh, who want to see pieces of themselves or pieces of their own lives in books. But I also like the idea of writing for everybody and writing for audiences that are, you know, that are diverse and that that don't necessarily share the identity of the characters in the book, but that also want to see, you know, want to see the world through different eyes. And I think there's so much power in that in writing for for broader audiences. What has been the reception? Like, do you have a lot of teenagers that are contacting you and talking to you about this book like how how has it been received you know what funny enough I feel like the most of the messages I've received I don't know if it's because um of the audience that I reach on my specific like Instagram and Twitter pages is tends to be more adult or I don't know what it is but I have received um mostly messages from you know people in their 20s and their 30s even older people um, who have seen themselves in the character of Mateo and also teenagers, but the vast majority has been um, like adults, funny enough. And I love all sorts of messages. Like there's no message that I, that I don't love receiving, but yeah, absolutely. That's been, that's been funny to, to mostly get messages from adults. That's awesome because we we and I mentioned this not too long ago to an, mm. in another interview, but we had uh, Mahogany Brown on and we talked about this because I always feel like YA is not just for the Children. youth, like yeah. it's for everybody, for us to remember or for us to learn. And so it's awesome that you're having a lot of adults contact you and talk to you about how much this book means to them because uh, you're you're doing the Lord's work. If I say so. <laughs> Um, how about wh- what do you wish people would talk more about the about the novel like you know other other subject matters that you would want to explore more totally I think one of the things that I feel people don't often realize is that Indivisible is also a queer book and it's true that you know the main storyline is the immigration storyline and the the bigger focus is on Mateo's experience as a Mexican American and as the son of undocumented immigrants but i also wanted to write a queer character and specifically to tell a story about a gay character that didn't necessarily put a big spotlight on his sexuality and i think that you know i love and i think that stories that that do put a spotlight on queer issues are so important and they will always be but I think that equally as important are those stories that just allow queer characters to sort of exist and to deal with issues that don't necessarily have to do with their queerness and so that is one thing that I that I really would love to be able to talk more about, you know, Mateo's identity as a gay, gay teen and, and what that means for him, um, especially as it, as it relates to intersectionality and, and the struggles that he faces, not just as a Mexican, but also as a gay teenager. 
is there is there any hope of like continuing this story or are we done with or is this one and done for Mateo? I, I feel like I I know what would happen after. Like I if if someone were to ask me to write another book, I could, but I don't have immediate plans to. I feel like I'm very, very content with where this story ends. And I don't feel a sequel is necessarily um needed. If and when the time came, I I wouldn't be completely close to it, but I I just feel for now this is this is it. I just want to know what happens to him and Adam. I mean, <laughs> is it only me that cares about that? So I'm like, um, hello, what is going on? Do I just need like a blurb, a short story? I need closure, y'all. Get <laughs> my life because I'm like, you know, I I love the fact that you said that you know, queer people, queer children, queer teens also have the same experiences as heterosexual people mm-hmm. so for him to just exist and do whatever he needs to do for himself for his family for his sister for his friends and for his heart it's just all normal it's like this is it we're yeah. no different our experiences are the same and you know it's it's a, it's a, it's it's refreshing but also it's very realistic. Mm-hmm. That's what I like about your book. It's very realistic. Mm-hmm. I think I've said that word like five times. <laughs> I love it. Because <laughs> that was part of my goals. Like I wanted it to feel real. So, out, you know, when we have writers on, we're very interested on, you know, like the why they wrote a book a certain way, but we're also interested in the process of writing the book. And so publishing individual is quite a journey for you. And um, in, in May, uh, you wrote an article for Publishers Weekly outlining the writer's passage, mm-hmm. I like to say, rite of passage, and how this this acquisition of Disney books by Hatchet caught you by surprise mm-hmm. and it changed everything from I guess like the publishing date to the original manuscript what was that initial moment like for when all of those changes took place for you and then when you realized like okay the world has now just gone as we know it and so now I need just to sit with what I have and do what I need to do the truth is it was terrifying. It was a very stressful time. Um, At some point, I remember being uncertain whether this book was even going to get published at all, because I was like, because of the pandemic, because of all the changes that have happened with my publishing team, I don't know, you know, if someone's going to come to me and say, Daniel, it's not going to happen anymore. And, and what I find too is I, I was able to write this article um, with the benefit of hindsight and, and being able to look back at, you know, the fact that everything did work out. I was able to release the book and it's been well received, but um, the reality is that it was hard. And I think that is, that is also something that I, funny enough, think relates to the book in some ways and it relates to my future work just the ways in which sometimes the challenges that we face are not, well, we're, we're not able to really see them for what they are until much later on. When we are able to look back and think, this made me grow in this way, or this taught me this and this lesson. And, and I think that there's such a, there's so much to learn from change and there's so much to learn from failure. There's so much to learn from uh, difficult situations and we just got to be willing to 
learn those lessons and to take a look back and think, you know, what is it that, in which ways was I able to grow as a result of all of this? I know you said that, you know, you had to go back uh, with your new editor and they were talking about changing up the second half of the book. Mm -hmm. Was it a drastic change that needed to take place or were there just like moments where she was like, you know, maybe we could fine tune this part. It was a decent rewrite is how I'll put it. So the first half of the book has always kind of been the same. It's had changes, of course, but it's in essence, it has remained the same. And the second half, there used to be an antagonist um, that caused more issues for Mateo's family. And so what my editor thought was, she said, you know, you don't need this antagonist. You don't need this person to come in and cause more issues. You have enough, um, you have enough material to work off of just with these characters and just with the situation that these characters are facing. And so what I did was I did eliminate those like kind of external obstacles that the family was facing and I made it more intimate and more personal and very much about the decision that the family had to make about where the children needed to live, whether in the US or in Mexico. And that was a change that I did. However, I will say the last chapter uh, is the same. Like the last chapter was always the way it is, but just like how I got to that conclusion changed a little bit. Um, I have also mentioned this, but uh, Kylie Reed, such a fun age. Uh, she talked about how when um, she, you know, submitted and she got a publisher and all that kind of stuff, her editor told her to move a specific part of the book to the very beginning that the, the shots needed to be fired like, let's just go and see that climax <laughs> at the very beginning. Your book does that, but it doesn't do it at the very beginning. But you already know, like, if you read the back of the book, you know, yeah. like, okay, the parents are going to get taken. There's no, mm. no if, ands. But still, I'm that. still hoping, like, maybe they're not. Maybe it's a trick. <laughs> and it is like this, like, is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it? And then you get to the next part. And so you, you can feel yourself like it's getting ready. You know, it's got to happen, but it feels like the okay. shot is, yeah. is fired, but it's shot from way in the back and we know it's coming, but we don't know exactly when it's going to meet us. So, man, you wrote the heck out of this book. I just, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. That's, I'm like, this is, this is a, this is, this is really a good book. Cause you know, we, we talk to a lot of folks, we read a lot of books, especially in the time of the pandemic. And we just don't say, you know, things that we say to authors just to say them. Like we really mean it when we do. So Thank I'm you. hoping, you know, your book gets translated, written everywhere else. And I mean, not written everywhere else, published everywhere else, because you're the only writer of this book. <laughs> Well, thank you. That means so much to me. And I feel like as writers, we don't always, um, it's funny because I was talking to a writer friend a few, a few months ago and his book had only just come out and he was telling me, I feel like no one is reading it. I feel like the book is like not causing any impact. And I was telling him like, I keep seeing your book everywhere. Like I hear so many people talking about it. And he was like, oh my God, really? And I feel like that is just something that um, that happens to us authors. Like, it's funny how we don't always get to 
get to see the impact of, of, of our books. So it means so much to me to hear this. And I'm so grateful to you for reading it and for, for liking it. <laughs> well, thank you for writing it. Yeah, this, <laughs> this, is a hard, this is a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Reading is easy. Writing is hard. <laughs> so now after writing this book, you're like in this illustrious uh, community <laughs> of published young adult authors. <laughs> uh, what connections have you made during this beautiful start of your career? And how have you been how have you seen this community hold each other during this very difficult period of time that we're living through? Like you just mentioned your friend who's fearful that no one is reading his, his mm-hmm. book. Well, I think that is one of the beautiful things about the writing community is that people tend to be very supportive of one another. And at the end of the day, publishing a book is such a unique experience and it's such an odd experience in some ways. And so it's really, it's just lovely to have, um, you know, groups of people that you can go to and that you can just talk about your concerns because oftentimes they share the same concerns. And, and I think that if I didn't have, you know, the ability to reach out to other writers, um, it would be a much, much lonelier journey. And so I'm grateful for that. Have you done anything like in person, like, you know, about like talking to people about your book or like little meetups? Cause we had a little break in the pandemic break. <laughs> um, and then people started going out. Now we're on a surge, right? We're back. But you never left. So have you done <laughs> any of those like events? Not yet. Everything for me so far has been virtual, which also feels like, you know, one of those things that the pandemic robbed me of, you know, the opportunity to connect with people in person. I am meant to be going to a conference in November in Kentucky. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that will happen and that I'll be able to connect with um, teachers and librarians and authors and readers. Um, But so far it's all been virtual. Well, hopefully you'll get that moment. If, if not, in the next few months, you know, sometime next year, when you write your next book. Totally. Everybody is going to want to read, right? <laughs> um, so we've gotten to the point of our show where we ask the infamous question. We want to know, what are your top five favorite books of all time? Oh my gosh. I feel like it's impossible for me to pick five books, but I can tell you some authors that I absolutely adore. Okay. Um, I would say Jeff Sentner is one of my favorite authors. I feel like he writes in such a raw way. And by the way, his new book, um, In the Wild Light, just came out. So make sure to check that one out. Um, I would say Angie Thomas. Of course, how could she not be on my list? Because she's so impactful and she has moved so many people and inspired so many writers. Um, I think her work is absolutely incredible. Uh, I think Jodi Picoult is also a wonderful, wonderful writer um, who is able to, you know, what I admire about all these writers, the common theme is that they're all able to talk about difficult topics in a way that feels very accessible and very human and very, um, you know, personal. And that is something that I absolutely love reading and love, you know, trying to do in my own work. So I would say those are perhaps my top three authors, like my auto buy authors. 
Um, currently I'm reading The Maidens by Alex Michaelides, which is um, a thriller. It's kind of different from what I usually read, but I'm, I'm liking it so far. Okay. Oh, you got one more. Oh, um, let me think. Oh, well, um, Farida, I'm, I'm going to say her name wrong. I'm so sorry. Um, Ace of Spades is so, so, so wonderful. Um, I absolutely love, love her book. And she's such a, such a wonderful writer, such an amazing member of the writing community. Um, I think that's another, um, book to, to, you know, automatically reach for and another author to watch for sure. Well, um, our time has come to an end and we just want to say thank you so much um, for um, sitting with us and talking about your book and talking about you. And like we said, you are more than welcome to come onto the show anytime, even if you just want to talk about what you saw on Twitter yesterday. <laughs> well, I would love to. You you bet that I will hopefully be coming back. Um, and yes. thank you guys so much for having me and for all your kindness. I, I have one last question. How about this cover though? Did you pick this one? Did you help design it? Because it's it's very interesting. So our cover process was actually way longer than usual because we had a cover that was like a final cover. Uh, with Disney. And then once I transitioned to my new publisher, they wanted to switch things up. And so uh, we completely redrew the cover. And I will say we had perhaps 15 different like drafts, wow. like different like colors, different uh, versions of the cover. It was all the same concept. It was always, um, you know, Mateo, the outline of Mateo standing in front of, you know, the, the outline of, of the border. Um, but it was, there was many different versions and ultimately we agreed on this one and I absolutely love it. I, I don't, I can't imagine it being any different now. Yeah, me too. Cause I think it's very eye-catching. It's, it's definitely like, even, you know, when you see it on the shelf, it's like, oh, what is that about? It, it, it made me like do a double take on it. So totally. I well, really thank you. Thank you for picking it up. <laughs> Well, Daniel, thank you so much for spending this lovely, lovely night with us. We hope you all the best. Please stay safe and please continue writing. I'll try to do all of those things. And same to you. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.